When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff. So come think with me. Today, I have a special guest with me, Scott Christensen. Uh, he is one of my favorite authors, actually. So uh, I, I wrote my first book review. I believe it was on Scott's book, What About Free Will Here? So you can check that out at whatthenshallweread.wordpress.com. Or you can find it at parkersetacase.com. Just go to book reviews. And uh, a really good book, a really helpful book, lots of great definitions, really helped me at a pivotal time in my life, uh, thinking through free will and God's sovereignty. And so uh, sticking with that theme, he's written another book, What oh, uh, What About Evil? And uh, I-, I love it. I hope there's a whole series of what abouts coming, uh, coming down the pipe here, coming down the pike. So it's What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory. And uh, D.A. Carson wrote the foreword, so you know it's a good book. Uh, without further ado, though, uh, Scott, thanks for coming on the, the podcast, man. I'm glad to be here. So uh, just real quick, so you're the associate uh, pastor at Kerrville Bible Church uh, down in Kerrville, Texas. And uh, you are a pastor, but you're, this isn't like, this is a pastoral book, but you're you're delving into some philosophy. You're, you're talking with all the relevant uh, philosophers, philosophers of religion. You're talking. Uh, you're in conversation with theologians. This is this is really a really good book, man. Why did you write this book? How how did this get? Uh, how did you? What's the impetus for this? Yeah, well, I I really didn't want to write this book, um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, well, that's sort of an interesting interesting notion when you consider the topic. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, in my first book, what about free will. Um, the questions about free will obviously intersect questions about the problem of evil. Right. And so I, I do deal with that, that topic somewhat in a cursory fashion in what about free will and my editor at PNR publishers um, really liked what I had to say about the problem of evil in that mm-hmm. book. And so he really strongly encouraged me to delve deeper into that topic. And it really wasn't my desire to do that. Um, and, uh, but he encouraged me to do that. And so I uh, really started working on this new book even before free will got published. Oh. Um, so I've been working on it for four and a half years or so. Yeah. And it has, it, yeah, it has really taxed my mind and resources <laughs> uh, for sure, because there, you know, in some ways there's not as much out there, at least from the theological, um, exegetical um, perspective on free will, although there's tons of stuff on that debate in philosophical circles, but I'm not a philosopher. Right. And and I have a hard time hanging with with the heavy theological analytical uh, type uh, debates on on these issues, and mm. so so it takes a lot of work for me. And and I'm a popularizer, um, and so that's that's kind of where I'm at. But but when it came to the the problem of evil, there's a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of it, from a theological perspective, uh, endorses positions that are largely relegated to what is called free will theism, which would include Arminians, open theists and Molinists and whatnot. And very little uh, in terms of coming from a reformed perspective, Calvinistic perspective that Mm -hmm. holds to uh, the meticulous um, 
providence of God, his his uh, broad overarching sovereignty and so forth. And so we just really felt like something needed to be written uh, in a more thorough fashion that was more accessible yeah. um, to educated believers and pastors and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. I think you did a great job of finding that sweet spot too, because uh, you, you are a popularizer, but just take a look at the footnotes and you're dealing with all the relevant people. And so it, it can, you can tell that it took you a, a couple of years to, to comb through all that stuff. And I, I really do appreciate that, um, that you've done the hard work and that you've showed your sources there and it's right on the page, right in the footnotes. And so you can see, yes, he's read this. Yes, he's read this. Yes, he's read this. And, uh, it's just really helpful. I think it does, uh, it buys you a lot of credibility. Um, but I think it's so important because, you know, I, I follow the same perspective you do. And so I was so happy to see, that you actually put in so much hard work in doing it. Uh, a lot of folks who go with the theological answer kind of just go, this is what the Bible says. And that's what I'm, I'm sticking to it, you know? And amen, dude, I'm glad, I'm glad the Bible says that. That's, that's, that's why I believe it. But to see that you haven't just done this in a closet, but that you've done it in, in conversation with the, the necessary sources. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sort of interesting because in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of work uh, done on the problem of evil. A lot mm-hmm. of, of edited volumes that have come out, um, even some good volumes from Calvinists that have come out, and I reference a lot of those. And uh, and so it was a good time to actually be researching and, and yeah. writing on this topic because a lot of good material was coming out. And yet I, I, I still feel like my work is unique because I am offering something unique which you don't often find in this, uh, in this area, which is an actual theodicy. Mm-hmm. Um, most uh, Christian attempts to deal with the problem of evil um, approach it more from what is simply a defense position. And there's yeah. a kind of technical uh, ways of using the word defense and theodicy and particularly in philosophical and theological circles. A defense is, pretty much what it sounds like. It, it, it is just simply defending God against charges of God being the author of evil right. um, and, and uh, you know, being more morally culpable for evil. Whereas theodicy is actually presenting a positive case for why God has, depending on your perspective, allowed or permitted evil, or in the case of reformed theology has ordained evil to take place. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's it was a daunting, yeah. <laughs> daunting thing to to jump jump right into, uh, but I felt like there's been some good historical resources that touch on this issue, and uh, and I and I think in the end, it isn't all that difficult. Um, you know, there's a lot of ancillary issues that you mm-hmm. have to deal with, but in terms of of looking at it at, at the broad storyline of scripture. And and what the Bible reveals concerning God and His relationship to to human beings, and uh, and whatnot, um, I, I think it's pretty evident. Uh, yeah, what God is doing. Yeah, I I think you're right uh, as well. And it's it is daunting because uh, because of the way it's been parsed because theodicy has been such the, the, this high bar and defense has been this is a possible you know, a possible answer. And I'm not saying it is the answer, but it's a, it's a possible counterexample to the problem of evil. And so if I can just find a possible one, then, uh, then yeah, the problem of evil is not so bad, but then it's, it's easy to say that, well, it's easier. Not, none of this is evil, uh, is, is easy. None of the evil conversation is easy, but it's easier to come up with a defense and say, look, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying it could be. And then a theodicy is, this is the case. This is, this is why there's evil in the world. And so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And I, and I think that I, I think that um, th- philosophers, I have found philosophers tend to be very cautious, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's why they tend to lean on a defense and and not really want to put themselves out there right. with a theodicy, because then you you open yourself up to a, to a whole new level of criticism yep. that you don't necessarily open yourself up to if you're just saying this is a possible way. Right that we could resolve these tensions and these issues, but I'm not saying this has to be the way. Right. And, and so that, that's uh, so you put yourself out there when you do what I've tried to do. Yeah. Um, 
which is presented an actual positive theodicy. Right. And, and another aspect of it is you're speaking on behalf of God when you're saying this is why he allowed evil. Uh, instead of like, this could be why I'm not, not going to presume to speak on behalf of God. But that's why I think the, the way that you're doing it in this book is you're saying, here's here's what scripture says. Here's God speaking on behalf of God. It's not me. I didn't come up with this in my in my uh, own head, but I'm, I'm trying to pull out a theodicy from scripture, from the biblical meta narrative. And even I like to go into uh, to myths and, and uh, the true myth of C.S. Lewis. I love that. It was great. Um, and actually, I, I don't want to forget to say this, but you call free will or the free will defense, the Arkenstone. And that was just hilarious, man. So good. So props on that one. It's, yeah. it, it's the Arkenstone of, you know, <laughs> of, of many philosophers and theologians. It's this, this gem that we can't let go of. Yeah. 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 Pulling yeah. from, uh, from Tolkien there for, for sure. all the listeners who are, who are familiar. Yeah. Well, you, you can't write a book and, and fail to reference Tolkien at least three or four times. That's right. And, and Lewis, and you did it. So congrats. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, so before we go any further, I think it, it might be, uh, it might be helpful just to define the problem of evil. Um, I know there's, uh, you, you mentioned, uh, or you have used Feinberg, Dr. Feinberg's work. I took his class on evil and uh, he, he wrote a book, the many faces of evil, I believe it's called. Yes. Uh, and, and he, he talks about how there's different problems of evil, but, um, so acknowledging that, can you kind of give us like a, a broad view of the problem of evil and then make any kind of nuances you want uh, when it comes sure. to problems? Sure. So so basically the, the problem is is stated as a kind of trilemma. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's three uh, three statements in this trilemma that that historically have been acknowledged by most people dealing with this problem. And so the first two statements have to do with the character of God. Number one, if God is all powerful, number one, and two, if God is all good or omnibenevolent, mm-hmm. uh, then why, number three, does evil exist? So if you have evil in the world and, and plus you have a God who is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, then surely you have a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so what is the problem? Well, the problem is um, either God um, is not powerful enough to prevent or to stop evil from happening, um, or God is not good enough, um, and so he really doesn't want to stop evil, and therefore evil proceeds unabated. And, and so it's, you know, evil supposedly is a blight upon either God's attribute of omnipotence or his attribute of omnibenevolence. Now, you can add other attributes in there as well. You could say, well, God is not wise enough to figure out how to stop evil. Mm-hmm. You, you could attack that uh, aspect of God's character. You could say that, well, maybe God lacks true justice and true righteousness mm. uh, because he has allowed these evil things to to permeate his supposedly good creation and and therefore evil maligns the character of god yeah and uh, and so that's the basic problem and and so so the the task of the theologian is is theodicy and the term uh goes back to leibniz uh a seven 18th century early 18th century uh german philosopher Mm -hmm who coined the phrase theodicy, and, and it, it's a combination of two Greek words, theos for God and dike for justice. And so it's the idea of how does one justify God's existence in the face of evil, or how does one justify the character, you know, the attributes of God in the face of evil? And and so that's the basic notion behind theodicy. How, how can we speak of meaningfully of the God that the Bible has revealed um, if we have this, this problem of evil in the world. Yeah, no, that's a really, really helpful way of putting it. And I like that you brought in his other attributes. You can also toss in uh, omniscience, you know, maybe God didn't know about evil. And so he's not right. And and you can do it with all. So it doesn't matter as many uh, attributes as you want to put in focus. uh, You can still create this problem. 
and and you're going to have to you're going to have a hard time with the classical conception of God or the biblical conception of God, or or if it's both, if you're a classical theist. Uh, um, so you don't get to just escape by by dropping in an, another attribute or, or or refocusing on it. Um, I I liked that. Uh, I also like that you you talked about how every world view has to face this. You know, this isn't this isn't just a problem uh, for Christians alone or for theists alone, but everyone. We all have this phenomena of evil that we all have in our lives. We all stub our toes. We all lose our grandparents. And then some of us have way more evil than others. But we all are facing evil in this world. And so all of us are going to have to make sense of it from our worldview. And I, I, I thought this was, uh, this was a really, it was, it was helpful for me because I'm writing a paper on the, the simulation hypothesis, kind of taking the, uh, the social imaginary. It's kind of captured some of the students that I disciple. Uh, you know, uh, maybe we're living in a, a computer simulation. We're being simulated. And the the problem of evil comes up in the simulation hypothesis, you know? So what's the deal with these simulators? Why'd they make so much evil in the world? You know, and for my students leaning uh, way more left, why would they let Donald Trump be president for four? You know, that's a huge problem for you. What's up with this? Was that the whole goal of the simulation? Um, so yeah, you're, you're right. Everyone has to deal with this. I'm wondering uh, a difference between the defenses and the theodicy. So a defense will pop up for, for uh, as, as Dr. Feinberg uh, makes note, there's tons of different defenses based on what kind of evil you're talking about, based on uh, your theological understanding. So a Calvinist is going to have a different defense than an Arminian. I wonder, is that the same for theodicy? Or can you have one theodicy, um, one answer to, to theodicy, and you don't need as many different answers as you would in a defensive evil? Yeah, um... Yeah, I'm not sure about about that. Um, you know, I do I do think that that uh, one thing that's that's important to understand is that a lot of times apologists will combine different aspects of different yeah. defenses or theodicies, however you want to call them. And and even though early on in my book I make that technical distinction between a defense and a theodicy. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to use it very loosely throughout yeah. the book, but, but for example, you know, my particular position would really be a variation of two, uh, classical defenses, um, or theodicies, however you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, one is known as a greater good defense, which typically is what you would find most Calvinists embracing, although Arminians and others have embraced at least some kind of a modified form of the greater good argument. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then what is called the best of all possible worlds argument, which was Leibniz's argument from the early uh, 1700s. And, uh, and really my theodicy kind of combines aspects of both of those. It's really a kind of variation or a subcategory of yeah. greater good argument. Um, I call it the greater glory argument because my focus is on who is God, um, what is God's purpose in creating the world? And, and I start with those questions before I even get to the question of, of evil. Yeah. Um, and, and so really my, my whole argument starts with theology proper mm. and, and, uh, and so that's why in my early chapters, I spend more time in theology proper before I even get to the, to the actual problem of evil. Yeah, um, I think that's really helpful. And I think that that really does uh, frame the argument and frame the question and then set us up well for, for your theodicy. Scott, I wonder um, if you could recount uh, just a couple of the other defenses so we can know kind of where yours fits in. We, we got uh, the free will defense, the natural law defense, greater good, soul making, best of all possible worlds divine judgment there's there's more but those are that's a, a good yeah uh, yeah I, I tried to take what what are the most popular uh approaches to it and so yeah, yeah you can you could have endless lists of various ways <laughs> that's right. of approaching this uh so i took took what i felt were the most common responses from mm -hmm. a christian perspective and there are other perspectives as well you know sure. that, that, you know that, that i didn't really deal with but the free will defense is, by and large, the the most common response to the problem of evil. And what I find interesting about that is, you know, typically Christian responses to the problem of evil come more from philosophers than they do from theologians. Mm -hmm. 
And it's interesting that even though I think there is a, a fairly good balance between reformed or what I would call compatibilist, you know, those philosophers that would hold to compatibilistic views of, of determinism and, and free will or mm-hmm. human responsibility, and those that hold to libertarian free will. Uh, in, in either case, when it comes to the problem of evil, and it's almost like all of most of the philosophers have jumped on the free will defense yeah. wagon. Yeah. And very right. few have tried to defend God from a more reformed Calvinistic perspective. In either case, um, as it may be, the free will defense is the most common uh, a, a approach to the problem of evil. And, and essentially it, it, what the free will defense says is that um, God values the libertarian free will of his creature so much that, um, that he's willing to risk them choosing evil in order that they would have the value of free will, which enables them to have uh, moral responsibility and, and, and libertarian free will they believe is necessary in yep. order to be able to even act in any good way. Yeah. But by having such freedom, you are always going to risk making evil choices. And God had to risk this problem in order to preserve this greater value of of uh, libertarian free will, which is why I call it the Arkenstone <laughs> for <laughs> the free right. will theists. Yeah. Um, so that's the basic answer to the problem. Uh, it's very simple. Um, God respects our freedom. Yeah. And because God respects our freedom, he has to allow us to to possibly choose evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's the risk. It's a it, it's it's what Paul Helm calls the the risk position, mm-hmm. whereas the reform position he would call the no risk. Yeah. yeah risk free or yeah, no risk. Risk free, yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 the free will position. It's often um combined with the natural law defense. And again, the natural law defense is really a very narrow slice of the problem because it it it, it says that we live in a world that is governed by natural laws mm-hmm. and if you misuse those laws, then certain bad things will happen. Um, now, it's often combined with the free will defense because natural law tends to focus on evil that might be result of, of just accidents or things that happen in the world uh, that are just part of the fallen world we live in. And, mm-hmm. and so th- these would be incidences of what theologians and philosophers call natural evil. Mm-hmm. versus the free will defense is dealing with problems that are connected to moral evil, yeah. moral evil being those morally culpable choices that that moral agents like angels or or uh, humans make. Even God would be considered a moral agent, even though he does not make evil choices, mm-hmm. um, whereas other kinds of evil are natural evil. And, and this natural evil is a result of of these laws of nature that can be used either for good or ill. Yeah. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis benefits or they can bring about calamity. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm pretty sure C.S. Lewis talks about both of those in the problem of pain yes. and in, in connection, just like you said, because they, they kind of go hand in hand and the kind of the, the idea is, you know, I, I smashed my hand with a hammer, you know, that's evil. What the heck God. And yeah. then they'd say, well, you know, God made natural laws. And so if you are not paying attention and you smash your hand, uh, he's not going to turn it into a squeaky toy because what would the world look like if he inter- intervened every single time someone was going to get hurt? There would be no laws. There'd be no stable environment in which you could uh, enjoy and employ your uh, libertarian free will in the first place. Right, right. Yeah, it's like a natural kind of fit there. Yes. So so that's that would be those two defenses. Then, then the third defense, which is also very common, Mm-hmm. Um, and, and generally associated with Calvinists, though all not all Calvinists and Reformed people would hold this, it's called the greater good defense. And basically is that the idea is that God ordains or purposes evil because doing so means that some greater good will come out of the presence of that evil that otherwise would not come if that evil was not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... Um, 
you know, example of that would be Joseph in the Old Testament. Had Joseph not been sold into slavery, had he not become captive uh, in Pharaoh's household, and had he not gone to prison and then had this opportunity to to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, then you wouldn't have seen him be used to uh, to avert this great famine and mm-hmm. to preserve the line of his family and all of this. So all of those evil things that happened to to Joseph uh, was all for a greater good yeah. that God uh, established that he otherwise could not have had he not gone through all that horrible uh, as you know incidents in his in his life. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that and that story always comes up right right away. So yeah, great. Good job with that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then then there's a then the next the next couple of uh defenses that I mentioned in my book are, are really kind of variations of the greater good defense, and I, I link them together. One is called the soul making theodicy. Mm-hmm. And um oh gosh, I can't think of the guy who's the origin of that, uh, although it really goes back to Irenaeus in the early does, does John Hick John talk about Hick. Yeah. that's right john hick yeah. um and uh anyway the idea is that that um adversity produces character mm-hmm. uh so it's only when when you know a man is for example faced with the pressures of of war or battle or whatever that he can develop the characteristic of courage right for example, and so courage is a great, uh, a great character, a great character building feature of, of of a mature human being. And so, in order for you to develop courage, you have to face some kind of adversity, some kind of evil, uh, some kind of crisis in your life in order for that to be to be developed. And so, he says that human beings start out in a state of immaturity. And through going through a series of adversities in the course of life, they then, um, you know, are are given the opportunity to build their character in ways that they could not build without all that adversity. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. And then, and then there's the best of all possible worlds defense. Um, and this is is uh, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, from the uh, the German philosopher. And uh, and basically, he said that he started his theodicy um, or defense from the from the the position that God is a perfect being. So this is what some theologians, philosophers call perfect being theology or theism. Mm-hmm. So God is perfect in every way, and 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 we would, you know, as especially those who are of the classic theist. Uh, position would agree with that, that God is the perfect being. You can't imagine uh, any greater being than than God as he has revealed himself. Yeah. So such a God would only create a world that is perfect. Um, if he is perfect, then why would he create a world that is anything less than perfect? Right. Well, since this world has evil in it, then it must be that evil is necessary for a perfect world. Now, uh, often the um, the criticism that that um, that was leveled against this view is, uh, well, give us a positive demonstration of why evil would be necessary for this world. Leibniz never really provided that answer. He said, "I don't need to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't need to know what reasons God might have for creating the world that He has. It's just simply good enough to know." that because he is a perfect God, he would do nothing less. Yeah. Um, and so he really employs an early argument of what's called skeptical theism. And that's actually sometimes a separate category of, mm-hmm. of a theodicy or defense. I talk about that in the book because it is an important uh, response to evil, but I don't categorize it as a, as a, as specific, as a specific defense or theodicy. Okay. Really a complementary the odyssey to the greater good uh, defense. And, yeah, that sounds right. And the best of all possible worlds defense is really a variation of the greater good defense. Yeah, and this is this is uh, this is what Voltaire was responding to, I believe, in in his book Candide, 
where he he's got yes. Candide going through all this crazy stuff and hey it's the best possible worlds and he just like lambasted yeah. him but um I I so I'm glad that you also mixed in uh your greater good defense as well so we don't uh, fall prey to uh to Candide as yes. well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the final one is uh divine judgment the divine judgment yeah, defense. Yeah, divine judgment and and as I point out in the book this is not so much a defense as it is again a more of a complementary um response to mm-hmm. to evil and and essentially it is it's the idea that you know god is never going to um allow evil in this world to go unaddressed ultimately yeah and so he will bring judgment um, he will bring temporal judgments at times, and ultimately he'll bring eternal judgment. Uh, and uh, and so because God is just, he is going to deal with evil. He'll never allow injustice ultimately to prevail. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, that raises other questions uh, for the Christian because it, it, it raises the problem of hell. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, how could a good God consign people to hell eternally and and all of that yeah so you begin to realize how how many issues you have to deal with <laughs> seriously um, you know when when you're you're tackling this problem yeah definitely well so this brings us right up actually this was so interesting to me so i'm still having this battle in my head because i have you know dr feinberg t- taught his whole class on this and he kept on um he kept on talking about how uh, greater good defenses um kind of make you be a, a consequentialist when it comes to ethics that, you know, the, the ends justify the means. And it sounds really bad. It sounds like something we don't want to affirm as a Christian, but then something that, that uh, Dr. Greg Welty pointed out in his, his new book on, on evil, why is there evil uh, in the world and so much of it? He, he talks about how every defense uh, is a greater good defense. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that just blew my mind because, well, the free will defense, no, no, he's saying that there's a, the it's a subsequent good that like you know free will is necessary yeah yeah god thought it was better to give them free will than to not give them free will it's a, it's a, there's a greater good there that justifies evil it's yes. god giving them free will natural law defense you know it's it's better for them to experience evil and have natural laws than not and so it's yep. it's a greater good all the way down all the way down you go you can't escape the the greater good it's just which and i think this is why i like your book so much which one is can be made sense of from the Bible, which one's the, the most biblical, maybe we could say. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, just to put in a plug for Greg Welty. Um, yeah. Certainly I want people to buy my book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but his, his little book is excellent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I encourage your listeners to check him out as well. It's a, it's a smaller book. Yeah. It doesn't nearly deal with the depth and the length and, with the, the problems that I deal with or the issues that I deal with. Yeah. But it's a really great primer uh on on the whole issue. And he is he is he is rock solid and and Greg helped me a lot uh yeah. in 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 certain sections of my book and helped me shape my argument in a in a more careful way. <laughs> and uh so I'm very indebted to him and, and James Anderson as well. Uh both really great great guys. Yeah, seriously, they've they've shaped my entire uh, my entire educational path is from their advice. So they're they're great. I also saw you know Guillaume Bignon in there. He's been on the podcast as well, and uh, my other professor D.A. Carson, who terrifies me, uh, you know, but, but he said really nice things to you, so that was good. So yeah, it, it's it's a really good. I just want to plug this book. Go and buy this book right yeah. now. We're not going to be able to cover everything, unfortunately, and yeah. uh, maybe fortunately too, because this would be like an eight hour. Uh, podcast but yeah. <laughs> um I, I wanted to get in a little bit into your greater glory theodicy i i you can't do it justice uh in in verbal form i think than you can in written form just it's just different um but yeah i wanted to go in and, and see how how much of a con- concept we can help uh the listeners form yeah yeah so you know, the, the greater glory theodicy, as I said, it's a kind of a combination of the greater good argument and, mm-hmm. and the best of all possible worlds with some with some caveats in, in there. But um, but anyway, I, I really begin with the question, um, why did God create the world? Yeah. Um, why did God create it all? Uh, God had no need to create 
um, God was fully satisfied um, in his own Trinitarian being. Uh, so there was, there was no need for him to create at all. He, he didn't, he wasn't lonely. He didn't need to create uh, people made in his image so he could have some friends. Right. Um, he already experienced perfect love between the members of the Trinity from eternity past and so forth. So why did he do so? Well, he did so out of his own freedom and out of the own self delight in his glory. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and really I draw here from Jonathan Edwards, probably through the lens of John Piper mm-hmm. um, uh, in which Edwards very strongly believed that God created the world. So he would have a stage on which to display his glory. Yeah. And, and consistently Orthodox theology, even beyond just reformed Orthodoxy has always affirmed that God's greatest goal, God's greatest purpose is to magnify his own glory. I, I think that's fairly indisputable. Yeah. Spend some time uh, arguing for that. Um, and and so that that's why God made, that's why God created. He wanted a place to display and magnify his glory. Mm-hmm. So then I asked the question, well, where is God's glory most magnified? How, how has God been most magnified in history. Mm. And I think if you, and if I, I ask people this, this, this question where, you know, in what way has God been most, has most magnified his glory? And, and the answer is pretty clear. It's pretty simple. It's in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's in, if you want to expand that, it's really in the incarnation, the death, resurrection, and subsequent exaltation of Christ. Yeah. Amen. Uh, that is consummated in his, in his coming kingdom and, and his return and all of that. So it's Christ and mm-hmm. what Christ came to do. Now, when we argue about the incarnation, we can say, well, well, one of the purposes of the incarnation was certainly that Christ came to be the perfect uh, display of the father to us as creatures. And that's true. Mm-hmm. But if that's the only reason why Christ became incarnated, then I think we would have a very empty, <laughs> Uh, um, an empty storyline. And so yeah. this is why I tie my theodicy to the storyline of scripture, uh, which is very simply stated creation, fall, redemption. And so God is most magnified. His glory is most magnified in the redemption that is accomplished by Jesus Christ. That can only be accomplished by Jesus Christ mm-hmm. as the incarnate God, man. Yep. Um, and, and therefore, if this is where God's glory is most magnified, then it requires some crisis by which redemption becomes necessary. Yeah. And so this means that God had to purpose the fall and for evil to take place in order to magnify his glory through the work of redemption. Yeah. Um, and part of the argument, and some would say, well, okay, that sounds nice. Um, but that still doesn't explain why God didn't just leave, you know, the world the way it was in an unsullied, unfallen state of Eden. And I suggest that really the storyline of scripture, which is typically described as U-shaped, right? You start with creation, the good mm-hmm. state, the way the world should be, right? Right. And, and and I talk about that early on in the book, that mm-hmm. as human beings, we know that we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. There's something right. wrong with this world. Yeah. I mean, look at what's going on in our nation now and yeah. in the world. <laughs> and and every know, worldview has to make sense of that. No one says, yep, we're good. This is exactly what's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why is it that we're constantly, you know, clawing and scratching for some kind of utopian vision? Right. We understand that we live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and and so uh, we long for a world that is right. Yeah. And we don't live in that world. But the Bible tells us there was such a world. It was a world that existed before the fall of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, that fall took place and, and thrust the world into a crisis situation. 
that begs for redemption. And God has sent a redeemer and he has sent that redeemer in the person of Jesus Christ, the only one who could solve this crisis and restore us to the world that God wants this world to be. Mm-hmm. However, what I suggest in my theodicy is that, that the restored world, the redeemed world is actually greater than the world prior to the fall mm-hmm. because of the price that had to be paid, the depths to which the crisis um, plunged and the remarkable, absolutely superb manner in which Christ and the price that he paid and everything that had to happen in order to secure this redeemed world yeah. magnifies God's glory and magnifies the final state of redemption in a way that could never be achieved had the storyline been flat, Yeah, that there had been no fall. We just lived in this perfect unsullied world. There'd never be opportunity for God to display his grace or his mercy or even his justice for that matter. Um, And that's not to say that God is not gracious or just, but he had no opportunity to display those characteristics apart from a fallen world. And so I say all these things combined together begin to show what a magnificent plan of redemption God has established. And all of that necessitates that he designed the world to fall Hmm. and for it to be thrust into this crisis situation that is evil filled and and that the end result is far better had that not happened yeah so uh that's so helpful so you're you're mixing you're you're taking some from both the greater good probably more the greater good and then some of the the best possible world um Mm -hmm. and in saying that a world that involves that contains sin is a better world than a world without sin because in that world the, the world we live in it's a better one than if there was no sin because we get to see God. Uh, well, we get to see God more. We get to see his justice, his mercy on the cross, mm-hmm. but also God's uh, attributes are more fully displayed in, in this theater of, of God. Is that, does that sound right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. There's a whole host of things and I, and I try to touch on a lot of them. And I suppose maybe there would be future writers who would grab onto my theodicy and, and, and find other ways that I haven't even explored mm. that that would indicate other ways that God's glory is magnified only in such a world where 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 sin and evil has permeated it. Um, but but absolutely, I mean, you, you just think about the hymns and the songs that we cherish as believers. Yeah. What are those songs about? Inevitably, they're about redemption. Yeah, deliverance, salvation. Christ's work of magnificent grace and mercy, uh, you know, um, and his salvation of wretched sinners. You know, oh, wretched man am I. And Mm. and here this, this, this God decided to condescend himself, come below even my own station in life in order that he might exalt me and redeem me and place me upon this rock of salvation that that i did not deserve yeah um and so you know the display of god's mercy and grace is is just beyond belief it's beyond our ability to fathom yeah and yet none of that could be displayed unless there was a crisis a problem that had that that screams for redress yeah and that's what God did in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of, of Christ. Man, amen. So uh, in the back of my head, I got a couple of philosophers just asking questions like, uh, so so you're appropriating some aspects of the, the best of all possible worlds. Does that commit you to saying that this is the best of all possible worlds? Because I, I could hear them saying, you know, what about one more lash on the cross? Or what about one more drop of yeah. blood spilled from, from Christ? Can, right, have you right. thought through that? Yeah, so... Leibniz, Leibniz's uh, view was that this this is the only possible world. There could be none greater, none, none right. worse. So it was the only world really, yeah. that God could have created. My my theodicy doesn't 
commit myself to that. Um, But what it does say is that, that um, there, there could not be any greater world than one in which Mm. it involved the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ultimate exaltation of Christ. Yeah. So God in his freedom could have ordered things in a whole, in any number of different ways. Yeah that that we have no access to because we don't have the mind of god yeah um you know and and yet i don't believe there is a world that would be greater than the one that he did create there may be equally great worlds yeah yeah that god could have created but i think all of those worlds or what philosophers call states of affair Mm -hmm would involve the incarnation, the death, resurrection, and exaltation of Christ. Yeah, that's a that's a great move. I really like the way you parsed that out too. Uh, yeah, you escaped the, uh, the the horns there. I think that's that's really. I'm going to use that myself. I like that a lot. Um, I'm I'm working on uh, uh, a master's thesis where I, I I am doing a lot of the same work that you're doing, and I was so pleased to see you doing it, and also very pleased to see the footnotes because that saves me so much work. <laughs> uh, I get to just cite your your uh, your book there, but uh, yeah, I'm going over and you touched on this in your book as well. Uh, I forgot which chapter it was, uh, into the 170s pages, something like that, and uh, talking about God as the author of the world and how. Um, so I'm I'm talking about the authorial analogy, and uh, James Anderson talks about this in uh, Calvinism: The Problem of Evil, and so trying to show that God is the author of reality, uh, but He's not the author of sin in a morally culpable way because of, you know, compatibilism. Um, But at at some level, he's, he's the creator, he created everything. And so I think what's also helpful with your theodicy, which, which I will be appropriating as well, is that God is for God, as uh, the famous Matt Chandler sermon says that uh, he, he is the ultimate, you know, subject of, he's the ultimate, uh, he's what the story is all about. He's the main character. The, The person of Christ stepped in, to the the author steps into the story and it's always been about him and it's all about him. And I think some pushback, I want to get into a couple of objections, but initially for those listeners hearing this and feeling some kind of like visceral reaction, it's probably because we have this very high view of humanity. Uh, we have a very high view of ourselves and, you know, I don't want to impute motives. I used to think, you know, God is for me. God is like trying to help me have an awesome life. And evil is a really big problem because I experienced evil. And God, what's up? I thought you're so good. You're you're not keeping me from evil. But then realizing, as I read scripture more and, and listened to John Piper a lot, actually, but but saying God is the purpose, and I'm a character, and that's a really big deal. That's really still yes. awesome. I'm made yes. in God's image, but yes. but it's not all about me. Uh, it's about Him and His glory, and I get to see that. Yeah, and John Frame really brings this out this issue yeah. out when he says that most theodicies even greater good theodicies tend to have man at the center and man's yeah. happiness or man's uh fulfillment whatever yeah. satisfaction at the center of the problem of evil mm-hmm. uh and we can't go down that that route because that's not the route that the bible paints for us yeah the bible paints for us that the central um reality that we have to come to grips with is the centrality and the glory of God. And and so, you know, God is the, you know, I I, I use the analogy and and really I borrow it from Jonathan Edwards that, that God is like the sun and, and, you know, we want to be like planets that revolve around the sun and we want to place ourselves at the center of our solar system. Yeah. Well, we're of too little weight and mass and, and substance to be at the center of the solar yeah. system. Only the sun can be. Uh, only God can exist at the center of reality. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us orbit around his glory. Yeah. And so any theodicy that fails to see that is is missed the boat altogether. If we place man's happiness or man's joy or his, you know, whatever, um his comfort, his ease uh, at the center of the problem, then we've missed the boat altogether. Yeah. yeah. And, and so one of the things that I deal, and this is why I say my theodicy begins with theology proper. And one of the things that I deal with early on is I talk about the transcendence of God. Mm-hmm. 
And we're dealing with a God who exists in a category all by himself. He transcends the creation. We, we have to uh, pay careful attention to the creator-creature distinction yeah. and, and to realize that God exists in a plane that we simply do not occupy. And because he occupies this transcendent role, and I think R.C. Sproul does a great job of of bringing that down to the lower cookie shelf in the Holiness of God mm-hmm. uh, book and video series. If, if your uh, viewers haven't seen that or read that, but um, but the transcendence of God is just simply another way of talking about the holiness of God. Mm. Um, that God is wholly other. He exists in this category that is so unique and so, so different. Not that he's entirely different, right? right. He's not absolute transcendence, mm-hmm. right? Because he is imminent as well. Yeah. Uh, he does relate to us and he relates to us supremely in the incarnation. Yeah. So, but there's this tension between the transcendence and imminence of God. Nonetheless, when we look at the broader perspective of God's transcendence, this is where we can see God, as what I call the transcendent author mm-hmm. of history. And so, and I, I borrow this from, from uh, John Frame and Wayne Grudem and, and, yep. and several others, where they liken God's, uh, the model of providence that they, they draw from is the idea of this transcendent author. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like a Shakespeare who authors the play Macbeth, and you're going to have good and bad characters. You have good and evil characters in his plays and they're, they're usually tragedies. And so a lot of the heroes are tragic heroes and so forth. Um, you know, and, and so a lot of evil happens in Shakespeare's plays. And yet all of his plays are designed to uphold virtue, mm-hmm. whether you have evil or good or whatever. And, and so yet when we see evil take place in Shakespeare's plays, we don't attribute that evil to Shakespeare as the author. Right. Right. He's just simply the author and he's constructed a story that includes evil and good characters with evil taking place and so forth. But ultimately, there is some redemptive purpose to the storyline. Yeah. Um, Even in tragedies. And I make some distinctions between the classical view of tragedy and comedy and story making. But but God is this transcendent author stands above the creation and the, the, the work of history in such a way that he can ordain these things for an ultimately good purpose without, without himself being culpable. Yeah. There's other issues involved in culpability too, but that's right. one of them. Yeah. No. And I, that's why I love the analogy and I, I'm, I'm taking up uh, particularly uh, Kevin Van Hooser's uh, in his, uh, Oh man, what's it called? Uh, Remythologizing theology. He's got a particular view and his is from the continental side. And then I'm kind of blending out with James Anderson from the analytic side, but I think it's so helpful. Anderson talks about, uh, so we talked about like, you know, Macbeth and Shakespeare uh, for, for the listeners, you know, think about uh, like Tolkien, right? So we make another mention of Tolkien. Yes. Is, you know, why did Smeagol be, or why did Gollum, why did Smeagol become Gollum? Well, it's because that evil Tolkien made him do it. Well, no, like no, no, we, no one could rightfully go and arrest Tolkien for writing that thing and making him do anything like that. It's a different level of reality, mm-hmm. and so intra intra mundane, intra narratively within the story, Smeagol has the reasons that he has for doing things, and he's acting on those desires, and he's slowly turning into this evil character, and and it's his fault. We can rightly say that's your fault, right. in a way that we can't ascribe to Tolkien. And in a way that if we removed Gollum from that story, this the whole story is diminished. It's yeah. a worse story yes. without that evil character, just like you're saying with the world's analogies. Yes, yes, yeah. I should have used that that very illustration <laughs> <laughs> and teased that out a little more. I think yeah, I jacked it great. from Anderson, that's, but yeah, yeah, that's a great one. Uh, I, I wonder if we have if do we uh, do we have time for uh, a couple objections to the no, greater? No, I'm not good at objections. <laughs> 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 we could just cut that right out sure. there. Sure. Uh, well, so so one initially, and, and this is one that I'm I'm dealing with too, is uh, gratuitous evil. The problem of of evil that seems to have no purpose, purposeless evil. Uh, and in in the philosophy text, there's a famous example of uh, a, a tree getting struck by lightning, catching fire, and then falling on a, a helpless doe. You know, yeah. just out in the middle of the woods. Like, what's the purpose of that? Just gratuitous. You know, right. so. Right. Uh, how does that how does that um, 
Why is that a problem for your view? Like, why would anyone even think that would be a problem for you? And then maybe, how do you go about answering that? Yes, and so so this is this is uh, one of the the deeper problems of evil that that any position that you hold is going to have great difficulty yeah. answering. Uh, and, and we can multiply examples of that. People in their own experiences can multiply examples of what is seemingly senseless evil. It, it, it does not seem to to have any good reason for existing. Yeah. You know, the rape of a little girl. I mean, if you read um, uh, Dostoevsky's uh, Brothers Karmavon, I can't even pronounce the, the <laughs> title, but... Uh, um, you know, he gives examples in 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 that book, that novel that were drawn from actual uh, newspaper articles in Russia in the late 1800s of just yeah. horrific, horrific mistreatment of children and, yeah. and so forth um, that that are horrendous. And, and if you read Eli Weissel's uh, Night, uh, his memoir of the Holocaust, I mean, just mm. horrific things uh, right. when you read these stories. And you say to yourself, how, you know, I, you can understand if God would allow maybe modest amounts of evil. Yeah, right. Uh, that, that, that we can see how those things might be easily overcome or something. But to, to look at some of these incidents of evil uh, that appear to just have no good redeeming features at all. Right. How do we handle that? And and basically the response to that has been what is called the skeptical theism response. Mm -hmm. And basically to simplify that, it's the idea that that God has um, um, vast storehouses of wisdom and purposes and um, designs for this world that we can't begin to penetrate. Yeah. And therefore, you know, as, as Isaiah says, your ways are higher than my ways and your, your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Um, God, again, exists in this category of, of perfect knowledge and wisdom and, and foresight and, and designs and purposes and intentions that far exceed our pay grade. Mm. And, and, and so... How could we begin to pretend to understand what God might be doing in any particular instance right. of evil? And, and we simply can't, you know, and the reverse is, is, you know, you can say, well, well, give me a reason why God would allow this specific instance of gratuitous evil. Let's say the rape of a little girl or something like yeah. that. And, and, and we're left there dumbfounded, you know, well, I, I can't think of any. Yeah. But we can turn the question around and say, okay, can you think of of reasons why God absolutely could not yeah. have some good reason for this particular instance of evil that you've discovered every possible reason and every single one of them failed to yeah. be a sufficient reason for the occurrence of this evil? Well, you can't answer that question either. Right. And so we're both stuck in this position of not being able to answer that question. And yes, it is very difficult and it is, and it's, it's heart wrenching because it, it, it leaves us in this place of saying, I, I can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. And it's presumptuous for me to pretend that I could. Yeah. However, I think that, that the existence of such, seemingly gratuitous evil and i call it horrendous evil because mm. i think and, and what i presented to you is known as the skeptical theism yep you know that we were skeptical about any ability to answer one way or another what reasons there might be or reasons that there couldn't be for any instance of evil yeah um but what i suggest is that this places us in this existential angst if you will that even all the more calls us to cry out for some kind of ultimate redress yeah. to these horrific evils or what I call horrendous evil. Yeah. Because I don't call them gratuitous because ultimately I believe that there is no such thing as meaningless evil. Right. That God has some 
greater good for any evil, no matter how apparently gratuitous it might seem. Yeah. But the existence of that magnifies his glory even more so because when he finally crushes every vestige of evil, when the son of God returns and establishes his kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice, and God will judge every nation and every man and every tribe and peoples, um, God will get his glory, whether it's in judgment or mercy. And, Mm. and he will redress all of those evils and he will never allow any evil to go unaddressed and unjustified. And we have to cling to that reality and find our hope in what God ultimately will do, whether it is judgment or mercy. Yeah. And Uh, so that, that's and bringing that in is, that in fact magnifies his glory yes. even more so yes and that's and part of my argument that's that's helpful and and that seems like you're also bringing in that divine judgment defense there right mm-hmm. like exactly like, yeah. yes i'm pulling that in as well yeah and this is why it's important to you know and i draw this out earlier in the book it, you, we're not we're not confined to any one particular right. theodicy we're welcome to draw from the strengths of of different theodicies yeah yeah and and I think, um, especially if it makes sense within your your conception of your your theological conception, and I think the Reformed faith, the Calvinistic understanding, um, actually does does make room for all of those to be used just organically out of the creation, fall, redemption. If you want to add consummation on there, you know, a lot of people yes. just smash those into one. I I. Uh, I love I love that. I've been using that uh, with my students uh, on campus as well. I wrote a. Um, I watched an Instagram video of a goose and a tern and terns are like these birds that, that dive in the water and they grab, they grab fish and they fly back away. And this, this tern dive dove into the water, just this little pond and this goose out of nowhere, probably during the spring, probably ornery comes and, and like flaps on him and just drown him. And the, the tern almost got away and he stopped him a couple times and, and drowned him. It's like, you could have like that, that goose could have let that turn go. He, if he just wanted to scare him off, but he wanted to drown him. And I thought, okay, let's not over-personalize these animals. But God, like, what is the deal with that? What's the deal with that one? And I was writing my paper at the time. I switched to write about the, the evil turn and why God would allow that. And I, I, I came to use the skeptical theism approach that in order for me to know that there'd be no possible good that God could bring out of this, uh, a greater good, I'd have to be omniscient. I'd have to know all the DNA about that turn. I'd have to know that it didn't have some kind of super uh, bird flu going on that just needed to be killed right there and, and stuffed underwater where it could be properly disposed of. So the skeptical theist approach was really helpful for me in saying, look, I don't understand this, but I have a justification for not understanding this in that I'd have to be omniscient to know every yes. single ripple, every single butterfly effect that could happen from that turn not being killed. And so, yeah, like you said, it's really, I don't even want to be in the position of saying, hey, look, this is why you, my nephew has leukemia. This is exact reason. But yes. I can point to the right. cross and say, look, God, like like your uh, your theodicy here, God took the worst evil in the world ever, the worst conceptually possible evil, the God-man, perfect yeah, in nature, perfect in everything, crucified wrongly on the cross. If God could take that worst evil and bring about a greater good, then of course he could do that in my case with my nephew who had leukemia. Of course he could do that in the case of the turn, which is like this weird natural evil because they're not really moral creatures. but Looking to the cross, I can, I can say because I know he did it with the worst evil and brought about the great greatest good. Of course, he can do it with the smaller nice. amount of evil in my life, yeah. and I think that's the the pastoral aspect that you bring so well too, because you're you're dealing with philosophy, theology, but then you bring it back and help us think through, you know, as Christians, how are we supposed to think about this? Yes, yes, yes. That's an excellent. Um, all that is excellent, and and. Uh, you know, it's important to realize, too, that, that, that the theodicy that I am offering is not an attempt to answer every single question right. about evil. Right. And, and that's why you have to draw in things like the skeptical theism approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't sit there, you know, with a grieving widow right. and tell her why her husband has, has died. And I've done I've done at least three or four of those kinds of conversations just in the last year. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can't pretend to do that. You just sit and you cry and you, and you weep. And, and, and at some point down the road, 
you you present a sovereign God who is all good and all benevolent and all wise, mm-hmm. and, and we cling to that uh, because we have nowhere else to turn. Right. Um, but but um, but absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so we never want to be in a position to presumptuously, you know, to be presumptuous enough to say that yeah, I know exactly why <laughs> right. God did this particular thing. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, is, yeah. is God, you know, is God judging our nation or is he is he um doing something else i don't right. know right um, you know. yeah that's such a helpful point yeah. yeah well scott thanks so much for all your time man this has been super helpful i, I know my audience is gonna love this uh for for everyone listening right now just go buy the book it's it's so good he, he really does um a really good work and and all the sources alone would be worth you know looking through finding all those different sources but then again his his theodicy is bold because it's a theodicy and you can see in that book, you read up on what a theodicy is and you'll understand even more how, how bold it is, but it's also, yeah, it's it, for a Christian. It ought to be commonsensical. It ought to be, Oh yeah. Why haven't we been saying this all along? It's scriptural. It's biblical. It's, it, it goes along the grain of the biblical meta narrative. It's, it's awesome. So yeah. dude, I, I really appreciated your book and uh, I'd love to have you on talk, talk some more about this talk free well sometime. That'd be, that'd be great. Yes, this has been a great interview. I wish all my interviews went like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome, brother. Yeah. Well, um, we could talk about this more, Lord willing, someday we're going to. But for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. Go buy this book, um, What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory by Scott. And it's Christen, Christensen. Yes. I don't know about the T. Yes. Can you just pronounce it? Yeah. Well, actually, I, I pronounced my name wrong. But okay. Okay. That's <laughs> I what I thought. Christensen. It's really Christensen. It's a yeah. Danish name. Yeah. But nobody's ever pronounced it that way. And right. I, right. Yeah. I we're lazy with her. Yeah. Okay. Great. I right, don't that's... know why I have to just plead skeptical theism there. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Perfect, man. Tying all back. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, this has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. <laughs>